Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. You don't see a lot of times the genius of the structure in the music, the way that the chords are organized, the way that the parts are organized, the way that the the parts sort of ebb and flow with one another, but the impact that something like that creates when people sing in unity and they follow that structure, you know, if you sung Corley, like the experience of being in there, I've never felt a feeling so good in my life as being on stage, singing in harmony and in unity with a group of people. Like it is a high. I imagine that's what drug addicts get addicted to. It's so good, you know, and I'm always trying to recreate that type of structure with a lot of beauty and creativity within it and group participation in my work life and in my teams. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in. And welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors, to another episode of Suncast. I'm super excited to have you here. And I just want to say thank you for joining us again. Today's conversation is such a deep and wonderful exploration of the built environment and how we control it or how it controls us, perhaps. If you're new here, thank you for joining us and giving us a chance to earn your attention, lending us your ears, and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that of course is your time. We're going to spend some time with my friend Tanya Barham, who has 20 years developing programs and software to bring the built environment closer to decarbonization. Initially with a first-of-its-kind solar program in the Pacific Northwest, we'll talk a bit about the solar for schools, and now with building model predictive controls to improve the way public buildings manage their carbon footprint. Places like the school, your children and mine, attend. Tanya is a natural born entrepreneur. Today, I unpack with her the ways that she discovered her predilection for business building from her hard knock upbringing to the commonalities between choirs and companies. I think anyone currently building a business, climate tech or otherwise, will enjoy the lessons that we unpack here today. And yes, we also talk about things like solar and prop tech, even dabble in AI and sector convergences that are driving the current climate tech investment fury in very good ways. Did you know that 40% of greenhouse gas comes from buildings, the built environment, and 70% of that is actually electric use from the grid? 87% of commercial buildings don't actually have controls that they need to manage the complex solutions and software we're throwing at them. Today, we're going to unpack that and a little more. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, well, I'd love to know why. We have twice weekly content each and every week, shorter form content on Tuesdays that's practical and tactical in nature, and then longer form episodes just like this on Thursdays to give you insight and guidance from entrepreneurs who've been there, leaders who understand where you are in your career and in your company. You can check out more than 570 such episodes over at mysuncast.com and find a plethora of other resources to help you along in your career. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I'm super interested in digging in today to 
the backstory, the technology, the entrepreneurial journey of our guest, Tanya Barham. It has been a long journey just for us to get scheduled. And I can't wait to unpack all the things that have led to Community Energy Labs, which is a woman-owned and led energy technology company applying AI-powered clean building control platforms to the built environment. It's an exciting conversation. And also she has a lot of cred where solar and the built environment intersect. So without further ado, Tanya, welcome to Suncast. So excited to be here, Nico. This is really great. How do you describe the problem that you created Community Energy Labs to solve? As though you're talking to one of our preteen engineering-oriented children. So 40% of greenhouse gas emissions, and particularly the United States, come from building energy use. And that's primarily about 70% of that is electricity used from the grid. You know, there's obviously been a huge move among regulators, both local, national, and international, to reduce carbon emissions. And as the focus on buildings has increased, you know, we've looked at there are two strategies that appear to be gaining momentum. So in the past couple of years now, more than 100 million Americans, for example, live in communities that have decarbonization laws. So that's all great. We're going to decarbonize the built environment by cleaning up the power grid. So generating more of our electricity from renewables on one side and electrifying direct combustion of gas on the other side, making everything electric, right? Sounds awesome, but that bridge does not meet in the middle very comfortably unless you have a controls layer that can better match when the things that the electric things that are using electricity are using energy so that it better matches when renewables are producing it. Got it. That's the sort of short story. And the problem with those controls is about 87% of commercial buildings in the United States don't actually have that controls layer. And the reason is that building those controls for a more complex building that has more complex thermal dynamics than, say, a residence, which might only have one or two thermal zones, is complex. It's more complicated. And the only solutions on the market right now tend to be mostly like custom software. So you have custom systems integrators. The way that I would describe this is before you had uh, personal computers or before you had QuickBooks, anyone who was a very large corporation could afford a mainframe computer to do their computing, or you could afford SAP or Oracle or some very fancy custom enterprise software to do your accounting and finance operations in your business. However, if a mom and pop wanted that, there was nothing available. So we are basically like the QuickBooks of building technology. We allow a something more complex than a person just doing their taxes, but at a far lower expense than like an SAP or a big or a big mainframe computer. That's interesting. So, I mean, it's fascinating to me to hear that in a world where you've got Johnson Controls and Schneider Electric and Siemens and Honeywell and Linux, that there's only a 13% penetration of what we would generally control, consider control layers at a commercial scale. That's fascinating. Well, when you think about the economics of it, I think the compounded annual, those are each huge companies, right? So think about it this way. If you look at buildings, for example, you're probably in a building right now and it's probably using energy. So it's a huge yeah. market. The 10 biggest players in that space, like Johnson Controls, Siemens, et cetera, are $30 billion companies with like, I think a $300 billion global market cap. And I want to say the compounded annual growth rate for that market, just the the building's controls portion, 
is something like 13%. So if you are selling SAP or mainframe computers and it is flying off the shelf and you've built entire global sales teams around that price point, that sales strategy, what would be your interest in selling something at a fraction of the cost that's less valuable. They're making a smart business decision. It's the classic innovator's dilemma. If you've read The Innovator's Dilemma, they are making good business decisions. Their market is growing. They're listening to their customers. They're optimizing their margins. It makes zero sense to go to less profitable segments when their very profitable segment, which is Google, Cushman Wakefield, JLL, you know, their segment is big, it's profitable, and it's growing. Why would they go to you know, Pasadena High School, <laughs> who can pay them a fraction and, you know, represent a, a very different market. I love what you're explaining here. I mean, I hadn't conceptualized this and I'm going to ask you a question in a minute to sort of present us with Community Energy Labs as an alternative solution to, to the Johnson controls of the world. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the example you gave, SAP, giant company competes in the market with a number of different ERPs, not least of which is Oracle. You've got alternatives to for for small business that have thrived and created billion dollar like multi-billion dollar valuations and been Mm -hmm. acquired like zero and quickbooks and netsuite that offer erp solutions to the segment that gigantic companies like oracle and sap sort of let languish on the vine they were nevertheless companies that that can value the service okay so we go way down in the weeds here if we wanted to. No, but that's a but it's really not the weeds. It's, the, it's, it's real. Like with the yeah. change in regulation, building standards and codes and the change in utility prices, there wasn't a need, you know, there was not a need for these mm. smaller businesses to have that level of control. But now, however, there are penalties for noncompliance with building performance. Um, there are more complexities in their utility rates. And for the market that we serve, which is public's, K through 12s and larger nonprofits, energy is their second largest cost after labor. So K through 12 schools in the United States spend more on energy than they spend on computers and textbooks combined. So as that cost increases and gets more complex to manage, they need a solution. So it it was also that it wasn't really needed before, you know, there really was no need. And what I just heard you say, it's sort of, I I type along as I'm hearing because it helps me kind of think through if I've heard it properly, that energy is often the second largest cost for segments that are least likely to have these kinds of controls to begin with. Correct. Um, wow. So with that in mind, with that frame of reference, introduce me to your company. Why is what you've created going to solve this problem? Yeah. Well, when I was looking at, I was asking, you know, building owners, ESCOs, the standard operators in this part of the world about building decarbonization. I was just kind of asking open questions about building decarbonization. And something interesting started coming up over and over and over again. And that is that there's a particular segment, the public segment is about 30% of commercial floor space in the United States. And the way, even if someone were to purchase more efficient equipment and controls that could control it in a way that would work with these laws, it's typically done through CapEx budgets, so their capital mm-hmm. budget. And in order to do that, I started asking them about their procurement practices. And so if you're a school district, for example, you have to take out a loan against a bond. So you either need to pass that bond or you have to have enough money in that bond to finance these upgrades. 
And that's a multi-year process. And in many cases, these, (laughs) these laws are coming into effect pretty quickly. So it's an operational problem that you're trying to fix with a CapEx budget. And that CapEx budget is just an onerous, it's a really tough process to go through on the public side. Even if you have the money through a bond, you're still going to have to go through public procurement processes when you exceed a certain threshold of spend. So it's just administratively complex to put these controls into place the way that they're currently rolled out, which is bundled with large upgrades, large costs, et cetera. So what I saw some of them doing is skipping over controls straight to like straight thermostats and hoping that that would help. But even though those help, it doesn't necessarily optimize for both comfort and cost. So there was an intelligence layer or a a supervisory layer that was missing there, but I saw what they wanted, which was a low price point that could be put in place operationally right away. So I started asking them, hey, if if I could wave a magic wand, Uh, What could I do to make your life easier in this regard? And the three answers that I heard were, number one, get rid of my tenants. (laughs) (laughs) Literally an answer, but I think really the underlying thing there is there's a lot of comfort calls. So particularly people who are trying to manage energy costs, which of course schools are because they're always, you know, there's never enough money to go around for everything they want to try to provide. Maintenance and operations get the short shrift. And so they're here trying to make finance happy by spending less on energy, which we said second biggest cost. In the meantime, their maintenance and operations budget never goes up pretty much. So they're spending all this time responding to comfort calls. So it's always a fight between managing energy costs and creating an environment conducive to learning or serving the public where you're not freezing out or making people hot. I realized that they didn't want dashboards. They didn't want a single pane of glass. Like lots of people were trying to sell them monitoring. And I'm like, these people need another fault detection dashboard. Like they need a hole in their head. Like they are, you know, they're raking mulch. They're cleaning up vomit in hallways. It's like when you do a health risk assessment in wellness and you tell someone you smoke and you're overweight, like this was not a surprise to them. <laughs> they, they, you know, like they know that they don't have time to do their preventative maintenance. They know their stuff is 40 years old and broken. They don't need another fancy monitoring tool to tell them what they already know. They need someone to take stuff off their plate. So I heard this enough times that I was like, well, wow this seems like a big deal. Surely somebody is solving Johnson control. And I just started digging deeper and I'm like, like what? No, I I started looking at the solutions and I'm like, you know, Allerton, which has a lot of the K through 12 market, I believe they're a Honeywell company. You know, this is software that I just came from a school the other day. We, We say to people, oh, it's running on a beige PC in a windowless mechanical closet And you literally have to drive across town, log in, fire this thing up just to change the set point on a thermostat. Like you can't access it via your phone. It's on this old PC. It's like on its own segmented network. So 1998. Uh, So the computer the other day, 2007 gateway computer running Windows 98. You you nailed it. 1998. It is like, that is ancient. That is ancient technology. Yeah. So they need things to just be easier. So I started kicking around for some tech that I thought would solve this problem. And I came across something called model predictive control, which has been in use for 30 years. However, in buildings, there's a weird little complexity to it, which is that you have to actually build the model first. And it's the building the model that's really expensive and time consuming. So we pitched a couple innovations around how to build that model with far less time and higher accuracy, and then to feed that into 
a baseline model that uses machine learning to continuously update that model using data feeds. And um, that has been our innovation. And it, it then allows us to run on much more modern types of technology to create a very lightweight model and to create operational controls for the building, which are cheap because it uses AI and lightweight and easy because we don't have that sunk cost in these like ancient, in this ancient code or architectures that are outdated. So cheaper, we help building operators who have very poor resources to, we help building operators solve a problem that they find costly, time consuming, complex, um, and we create controls that make it easier and more affordable to manage their operational energy costs in buildings. That's amazing. You talked about how the work that Johnson Controls and Honeywell Linux do serves roughly 13% of the market and is 30 billion and growing at a 13% CAGR. What's the market look like for the bottom of the pyramid, the TAM for what you're trying to address? Well, we're trying to focus very specifically on one segment and we're trying to build a good company. It's just not that, you know, you can put stuff on a slide deck, but um, you and I talked briefly during our, um, you know, early conversation, our prelude about, you know, growth is actually can be quite hard to navigate, particularly when you're not running just a, a lightweight, you know, it's not Facebook, right? There is a whole service and hardware component to our business. So there's just the physics of human time. Like it takes time to ship a piece of equipment from its origin to the place it needs to go. It takes time to collect data and build your baseline model. So when you grow really fast, you hit this wall. Like you, growth can be, you have to have time to adopt. So we've tried to stay very focused on our core segment, which is publics and K through 12s. So the size of the market for that early market, is, we when you say public, what does that mean? Sorry, public. Publicly owned. So that would be like cities, counties, oh, okay. municipalities, mm -hmm. publicly owned. You know, it could be a publicly traded corporation, but it's anybody it. who ha is under a lot of public visibility and may have very lean operations and maintenance. So this is like city, city buildings and fleets, municipal buildings, uh, et cetera. Okay. And K through 12. Okay. And so you were talking about the TAM for that segment. Right. So for that segment, that's about 30% of U.S. commercial floor space is owned by public commercial building owners. And in our particular case, I believe there are there are about 13,000 schools, school campuses mm -hmm. in Oregon, Washington and California alone, for example. And I'm trying to remember the exact square footage for the whole U.S. K-12 market. Nonetheless, education is a big segment. And our aim is to capture 15% of the U.S. K-12 market by 2030, which would get us to $106 million in annual recurring revenue and $120 million in non-recurring with just our base offer, which helps them reduce their demand charges, even if they have solar. Not too shabby. Well, let's talk a bit about, before we dive into the actual background technology, which you meant is predicated on building data models and platform and both hardware and software that leverages mm -hmm. ML and perhaps we'll get into AI as well. Uh, I also want to get into your background. Let's talk a bit to further peak folks' interest, not only for the market that you serve, but for the company mm -hmm. that you've built about some of the accolades and accomplishments. You are a woman-led, woman-founded business, and uh, you were named SEPA Visionary of the Year, at least the company. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure if that refers specifically to you and your founder, but probably it includes that. Run me some of the, some of the top of mind stats that underscore the market acceptance and validation of the of the business thus far. 
Yeah, I want to clarify on the SEPA. Back in 2016 to 2019, I was the COO of Portland Energy Conservation Inc., which is a nonprofit that was focused on working with communities on commercializing energy technology. So co-creating microgrids, virtual power plants, and other energy technologies along with communities, frontline communities. Now this sounds like, you know, positively of the moment. So you look at the environmental justice EJ40 initiative, and it's like, yeah, of course, we should work with frontline communities. But in 2016, remember who was president. So we won SEPA's Visionary of the Year Award while we were at PCI. Both my co-founder at the time, Jennifer Worrell, was the CEO of a company called ITEROS, and I was the COO at PCI. And we had developed a model for project development of innovative technologies that engaged communities at the grassroots. Mm-hmm. And you know, Jennifer ITEROS was our technology partner for that initiative. So we won SEPA's Visionary of the Year Award in, I want to say, 2019 for the work that we had done with a tiny rural community to transition their economy from coal to building a microgrid in partnership with their utilities. So they now have a community utility-owned microgrid. Um, and, you know, this was before everybody was seeing VPPs and microgrids. So, and in fact, I actually love that back then there were people that are like, you're delusional. This is weird. What are you talking about? Virtual power plant. And those same people now I hear at conferences talking about VPPs. And I'm like, oh. That's amazing. Yeah, cool. Um, so that was how we spun out. So we spun out a PECI yeah. and I decided to, you know, go around and see what portion of what we were doing there, which of the technologies by themselves might be able to have benefit. And I knew I wanted to stay in some aspect of public benefit, like, you know, to be a triple bottom line company. I just wasn't sure where. And then, as I explained before, I found this niche mm. like, oh, here's somebody who has a problem. No one is really addressing this problem. I found a technology that can do it at a price they're willing to pay. I'm going to just go for it. Yeah. So I knew, though, that because we had a hardware component, because it was clean tech, which is now trendy in VC, but at the time wasn't, oh, yeah. and that women, women fronted companies. So me and my co-founder were both women at yeah. the time. And, you know, I think I've we've all read the stats, like less than 2% VC-backed companies are led by only women. Right. Now, if you add a man to the management team, suddenly it goes up to like 17%. Mm. You know, and in my experience, I had only done bootstrapped companies in the past Mm -hmm. or at PECI, we funded our second iteration through an asset sale. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to need to raise money for research and development, but I knew VC would be scared of the segment that we were targeting, which was Publix. I knew that they'd be scared of the fact that there was a hardware component. Most of the hardware is off the shelf, but still the hardware and service piece they wouldn't love. And, you know, I did wonder, but I wasn't super worried about whether the fact that having an all-female team would hurt us. So I had heard about SBIR grants before, so Small Business Innovation Research Grants. These are specifically allocated research and development funds for early stage innovation, scientific and technical innovations through the United States government. They're specifically meant to help commercialize promising new technologies. And the application that we were looking at of model predictive control, of making the setup of the model, there are sort of two components. There are the modeling frameworks themselves and the AI, and then there's that front end or the, the means and ways to collect the data used to make the model. And both of those were really innovative. So I went after a Department of Energy SBIR, and I actually submitted two proposals, one for the front end and one for the back end. And we had a really fun thing happen, which is that the program manager came back and said, both ended up in the top five. This has never happened to me before. So pick the baby that you're going to feed, and we're going to send the other one into the woods with some crackers. (laughs) (laughs) So good. 
So that funded my CTO to get started. That was how we got our first conversations going with school districts. And now since then, Virtue Lab, who was one of our early supporters, they're funded by the state of Oregon, Department of Energy. They help incubate clean tech innovations, mostly in the Pacific Northwest. They said that we are now their only triple crown winner. We have won a USDA SBIR, National Science Foundation SBIR, and Department of Energy SBIR, as well as a phase two for that grant that we won through Department of Energy. We've also won three separate cooperative research and development agreements with Pacific Northwest National Labs and Lawrence Berkeley National Labs to collaborate on new innovations. We've won three California Energy Commission EPIC grant challenges to work with low to moderate income housing developers. We won a CalSeed and CalTestBed award through the California Energy Commission. We've won two awards in conjunction with two separate utilities in the Pacific Northwest through uh, Washington Department of Commerce. I don't know if you want me to keep going, but there's a lot. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I, We've just been, you know. It is, it is phenomenal. So obviously with that kind of traction and also with the SBIR, which is non-dilutive funding, you are able to go and build the, the software. I presume at the same time, you're building some hard tech along with it. When did you for, raise your first uh, equity-based fundraising? Like how did you talk, talk to me about going to, to VCs, getting VCs on board? Who invested and why? You know, I left PECI in 2019. I was under non-compete till 2020. So I was doing customer validation. In 2020, we went out and did a couple, and I suggest any entrepreneur do this. We did Clean Tech Open. We did a Madrona Venture Labs, which was a VC accelerator. And we did win, but then they didn't invest. So I was like, all right, well, that tells me something. That was another reason we went after non-dilutive. So that was 2020. And then it was 2021 when we received our first SBIR dollars. Midway through 2021, my CTO came on full time. So at the end of 2021, we were really focused on just doing the non-dilutive route for our early R&D. But I was still pitching because I wanted to practice and just sort of see and a couple investors approached me and one in particular was Portland Seed Fund. So they are a small regional for the most part seed fund. They have a series of limit, uh, limited partners and they invest in early stage startups. And Jim Houston, one of their partners came to me and said, would you pitch to us? And I said, sure. You know, a lot of times I'll just pitch. The accelerators will ask me to pitch. And I feel like, you know, we're kind of like the thing that they're selling to their LPs and their investors. So I'm like, after find whatever. And they said that they'd like to invest and do the due diligence. And so I was actually sort of reluctant to raise money because we didn't need it mm. at the time. However, you know, what I soon realized is that the thing that people don't talk about, I mean, there are all the things about investment that every entrepreneur is going to tell you about that are hard, like for sure. And once you get that first investor, you still have to get the second. And until you get the second, it's just hard, hard, hard. But then I feel like once you get the first couple, everything came easy, just like so many other entrepreneurs have told me. But I think the thing that people didn't articulate the great part about working with investors is how much expertise they provide and how much value a good one provides immediately. So we didn't focus so much on the marquee names. We focused on people who clearly were communicating from the beginning, because at this stage, you're anyone who's putting money into your company is as invested as you are as a founder. They're getting mm -hmm. the same kind of stock. They could lose it all just like you could. So we wanted people who are real partners. Portland Seed Fund came in and they introduced us to a number of their LPs, many of whom came in in a special purpose vehicle. And a lot of those LPs had worked in kind of adjacent prop tech and IoT type companies and gave us recommendations for some just rock star early hires. So right now, our principal software engineer was one of those referrals from one of those early LPs. Fascinating. 
So Portland Seed Fund brought in a bunch of local entrepreneurs who had run very successful, some publicly traded, some not, enterprise software companies adjacent to our space. Then other entrepreneurs in the Portland area who I really trusted recommended Archivist Capital, which is Steve Marsh. So he was a founder who started a company called Smarsh. It was a legal archiving um, enterprise SaaS company here in Portland. I believe they're now doing 400 million in ARR per year. So, and Steve started it from zero. So he and Jim Houston, our investor at Portland Seed Fund have been like wish fulfilling genies. I mean, literally anything I ask them for, they're like, oh, you mean this? Here you go. When they came on board, I feel like it was, you know, hey, we need this. Can you get it? Yeah, here it is. I mean, even, oh, hey, I gained 50 pounds during the pandemic. I have a photo shoot coming up for Elemental Accelerator. Do you know a stylist? And I was like, yeah, okay. You know, and Jim's like, I'm the least stylish guy I know. Like, Where, here where do are- you ask that question? Where, where do you ask like a question like that to, of, your, of your LPs? Is that like in your Slack? No, I just call them. I send them a text message. Do you know a stylist? We do have an advisory list and we have great advisors. So we do have an advisory email that we'll just post random questions to. And there's always someone in our advisors who has the exact answer you need, no matter how arbitrary the request. That's it. I want to pause there. That's such a good, like I'm making a mental note. Advisory <laughs> email list. I literally, before this interview, had sent an email out. And if you're listening to this, you know that you were on that short list. To a very short list of people right before this interview. And I said, hey, very simply, I am thinking through like, how does the podcast resonate still seven years on? Is the question flow pro- uh, like appropriate for where mm-hmm. Solar's at now? And like genuinely asking these questions. And I never thought about the fact that like, that's a pseudo advisory email list. Now you've got yeah. obviously like formal advisors, but I think everybody should have an, an informal advisory yeah. list. That's such a smart idea. It was the first thing that I did when I started my company. Like I, I got a brand. I put my face up there before I even had Jennifer. I assembled my advisors mm. and, you know, I said, look, it's not going to be, we won't have detailed advisory board meetings. It's not going to be a heavy lift, but you're on this email thing. I'm going to ping you. And now, you know, we don't ping them as much. We've got a team and that team is a group of really solid generalists. So we need a yeah. lot less yeah. from just general advisors, but there are still moments where, you know, maybe a younger member of my staff needs mentoring. And I have one of my advisors, almost Nagash, who used to be PhD in energy, energy planner, but also used to be a teacher. So just great with young people, great with mentoring. So she's like, I'll do it, you know, or, you know, we've got folks who were there when LinkedIn uh, was sold to Microsoft, but it had been early in at LinkedIn. And we're like, Hey, how should we be compensating people with equity or not? And, you know, everybody hopped in and gave great resources. So some people you never hear from and then you ask just the right question and they're like, they just come out of the woodwork. I'm, I'm officially, unofficially adding you to my advisory list. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh God, I can think of so many questions I want to ask you now. Uh, yeah. Your experience just runs yeah. so deep. We're only three questions in and we're 30 plus oh, minutes okay. in. I can't believe it. Um, right. One of the things that we haven't done yet is really getting to know a bit about your background. Like what informs Tanya Barham and who, who she became in life? I'd like to ask a general question. You can take it however uh, direction you'd like, but it's meant to just kind of understand better the kind of family life that you had and kind of where you grew up and how. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like for you as a young person around the dinner table? Was it a close-knit family? And I'm curious specifically if there were any early signs of entrepreneurial or climate-focused tendencies, strong leadership qualities, et cetera. 
Well, it was a mixed bag. You know, nothing's ever one way or the other. I will say I grew up pretty poor. So grew up in a trailer park. We used to stay by a poop pond. It was right next to an open sewage treatment facility. So we had dry poop <laughs> blowing into the trailer in the summer. So I think, you Where know, was that, that? What part of the country? Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. That's been one of the, you know, my, in, the interesting things about growing up very poor. And uh, I, I think I was a second person. I was the oldest grandchild. And so I was the second person after my aunt who had graduated from college, even though my mom's family was quite large. Mm. So, you know, and even though the family was poor and maybe not well-educated, they were smart and they were curious and energetic and kind of, you know, neurotic <laughs> in this way that I think actually helped me. And I was always really good in school. And so I did, you know, early on, I think one thing that helped kind of mitigate some of the effects that poverty might otherwise have had, other than the privileges that come, I think, with being born white, were that, you know, I was early tagged, put into talented and gifted. So, you know, my test scores were in the 99th percentile and that meant that I got all these special resources, right? You know, like you're the minute I got into the public school system, which at the time before this is Wisconsin. So it was before they had like defunded all the public schools, Wisconsin and California were, I think the two best funded public education systems in the country at the time. So once I got into public school, there were just so many caring adults that saw my potential and really invested a lot. So I was in the tag programs, you know, all the way through high school. I just remember there were always like teachers, counselors who were plugging me into resources, who were promoting me to these leadership development type programs. And then when I went to college, I ended up becoming a nanny for a Swedish family that was just full of entrepreneurs. So they came from an entrepreneurial line. Like the the great grandfather, I think, had started Tetra Pak. So you know those what? like little sanitized bags. Yeah, no, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they were always starting something new. One other thing, though, about entrepreneurship, I know a bunch of other female entrepreneurs, and we had all kind of we were all talking this one time about like why are we successful in business. Mm. And I joke with people a lot about whether or not you really want to work for an early stage startup, because like, if I were to say to you, Hey, do you want to work for a startup? It's the equivalent of saying, Hey, I went to this program. I went to this program as part of this cohort. Some of the graduates include Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. And you'd be like, other than turning out a bunch of jerks, <laughs> this sounds like a great, no, I'm just kidding, guys. You're not jerks. Other than uh, turning out some of the most elite entrepreneurs in the world, this sounds great. You know, would, I want to be in this cohort too. So I invite you to this cohort. You show up on day one, really excited to become the next Jeff Bezos. And there are a hundred people in the room and they say to you, within the next five years, we're going to murder 98 of you. And two of you will get to be the next Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates. And, you know, the first 30 that they kill off, you're like, yeah, that guy was kind of a boob. And or I should maybe say that guy was kind of, you know, I knew it was going to happen. Let's not genderize our, our slurs. Um, that guy was never going to make it anyway. You know, the first 30 that they kill off, you're like, it was a bad idea. The next 30, you're sort of like, well, that could have gone either way. Like they had some bad luck or maybe, you know, one of the founders was capable and the other one was a mess. And the first one just couldn't recover. And like those last 30 that they kill off, you just don't know whether that's going to be you or somebody else. And 
honestly, what we said, me and all these other female founders is the one commonality that we all found is we had crazy childhood environments, either like mentally ill parents or poverty or something. And what we realized was that we're always just scanning the environment. You know, I talk a lot. So I think that there are people that think like, I don't listen, but I'm constantly paying attention. So even if I'm talking, I'm looking at our, you know, what is your face doing right now? Right now, you don't have any lines. Oop, there they go again. You have these two little lines right between your eyebrows when you're concentrating, right? So just like I'm constantly scanning. And in people who have been in really chaotic or sort of toxic environments growing up, you become incredibly perceptive about risk. And you're constantly adapting. You're like extremely adaptable, extremely resilient. And when you're an early stage startup, all you have is risk. You have nothing else. So the ability to tolerate just endless amounts of stress and risk actually is an asset, I think, for early stage startup, for early stage startup. I do think that some people can be kind of addicted to that chaos and then they'll resist putting in place systems and processes that you need to grow and scale. But it's something that I found, you know, I look back, um, I had just the right amount of support, but I also had just the right amount of like that bitter taste. And I think it's really helped me in early stage startup. Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. I want to pull on a thread. Maybe it'll go somewhere. Maybe it won't. But I find it interesting that among the interesting things you did that led to your first job is uh, a study abroad in the, how do you say this? Haskoli Islands? Haskoli Islands? Yeah. In Iceland, <laughs> uh, you know, now one yeah. of the well-recognized countries uh, not, that is not only, you know, having to mitigate climate change directly impacted by mm -hmm. it, but 
has a huge renewable energy supply through mostly geothermal. You went there to do some uh, some research and the company, your, your studies fell through because of a company being acquired. There's kind of two questions I have there. One, how did that end up landing you a job? And two, what is uh, your your preference for sort of social activities like choir have uh, to play in the way that you sort of approach the world? As we know, so many of our friends in energy and climate are musicians, uh, myself included. I, I, was in, I was in show choir in college and traveled all over the world in show choir. Most people don't actually know that. I think I've said it a number of times on the podcast, but we need to figure out a way to do a duet. Yes. Islands in the stream. Should we do islands in the stream? (laughs) It's a classic. So are you alto soprano? I'm an alto, Alto. of course. Yes, And I'm a tenor, so it could make for some really interesting harmony. Mm. Yeah, it could. Islands in the stream is not one that I thought you would come up with, but I'm all for it. It's, it's a classic. A classic karaoke duet. Absolutely. Um, we're definitely going to have to get some singing in, but the, yes. that's a great question. And you know, Elemental Accelerator, I was kind of like, my shoes were knocked straight off my feet by how those people can sing their asses off. Like they were like, oh, everybody karaoke night. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I love karaoke. And then they just showed up and it was like an American Idol audition. Like that's there so were fun. every single one of them has been in show choir or studied musical performance or like, okay, you're just I've like, got it. What I've got heck? it. The next time we are at an event, like a, a RE plus or something like that. Yeah. We yeah. need to host a karaoke party with the sun, suncast yes! and CEL. Yeah. That would be awesome. Oh my God. Let's just do it anyway. Let's, do it let's anyway. just figure out a way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be so much fun. All right. Oh my God. So we're going to do, we're going to do a, a cross country tour of, of uh, Tanya and Nico's karaoke <laughs> energy karaoke <laughs> energy role like i don't know how we're gonna we're gonna have to come up with a name for this there was a guy named aj who has like a green concert series no that way. He put together he was in clean tech open yes we got to get this guy involved he was amazing he had great energy so he's Super like fun. a he's a hip-hop artist mc and he also has like a green backup battery company Super for fun. concerts so that's part of the I like oh the, no way um, we had uh, james wagner on as well his company does all the backup batteries for uh, live nation Oh, wow. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. AJ, that James, let's just, there's a lot of us, I think. Also one more random, Eric Posse, who recently started uh, travel. He's from, uh, he's from up in your neck of the woods. Um, oh. IP, IPS, they got acquired by uh, New Energy Equity, which was acquired by Elite. And he has his own little uh, sort of music project, Palms Psalms, if I'm not mistaken. Shout out to Eric. Oh, and his- wow. And his uh, and his sort of musical ventures. Anyway, I could go on. Nice. So I just noticed that you were in choir whilst you were studying in Hasculi Islands, and that, that sort of Hasculi Islands. Yeah, sort of that sort of got your uh, your professional life kicked off. Why don't we? I'll let you go from there. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I was. Um. I received a reciprocal exchange, so it's a one to one exchange. An Icelandic person studied at University of Minnesota, and then they would the Icelandic government would welcome one American. So all my room and board paid for and my studies. And the idea was that I was going to do my undergraduate, my senior thesis for my undergrad there in Iceland. Um, And I was studying international relations with an environmental focus. So typically people that come out of that program are managing highly technical standards regulation. So you have to have a pretty solid technical background. You're looking at, you know, what is the parts per million or parts per billion standard that we should set? You know, should we outlaw this particular compound? So most of the folks from my program went on to work at like 
United Nations Environmental Program, World Health Organization, et cetera. You're a bureaucrat, basically. <laughs> so uh, my area of study was that in places like Iceland, you have these really favorable wind and water currents. So there's a thing that we used to say in my study area, which was the solution to pollution is dilution. And Iceland had that methodology going in spades because they have such strong wind and water currents that any airborne or waterborne contaminants would just go straight over to Germany or England. So, you know, not our problem. So give them all the parts per million and parts per billion regulations you want, and they'll never cross that threshold because uh, they have such favorable wind, you know, to that, to, to, to polluting. They're not going to be impacted by their pollutions. It's truly an externality. So I was very curious about whether or not, rather than taking something like the EU standard and applying it in Iceland, whether a small country like that could ask potential polluters, and in that case, it was the aluminum smelting industry because they have such cheap geothermal, to adopt voluntary standards like the ISO 14001. Mm -hmm. And if the adoption of those voluntary standards, which include voluntary reporting of potential emissions, would be a more effective way to manage pollution than to set a standard which was never going to apply to their environmental conditions. What the ISO 14001 requires, though, is that the polluter voluntarily say, hey, we accidentally had this emission on this day and it may have had an impact and they have to categorize their impact. And then in my study, we were going to measure pre and post. And while it might not have met the regulatory threshold, we would see if it, it changed the actual outputs. Well, I was unaware. I mean, I was very new to these types of things that the company that I was looking to do the project with and had some early conversations before I came over was in the middle of a hostile takeover. Oh my God. <laughs> so they assumed that I was a plant who was there to get dirt on their negative environmental impact in order to drive down the price of their shares oh so that they could be taken. I mean, I'm just like, what? They're like, who sent you here? And, and they kicked so me out. And it was, I was pretty, I was at 20, whatever I was, 21, I was pretty nefarious. Yeah. So, but that was pretty cool. Somebody was like, wow, you should put corporate espionage on your resume. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was sad. It was a cool idea. But then one of my professors at the University of Iceland had a small company. Everybody had a company. I feel like in Iceland at the time, this little startup doing GIS and using ArcInfo and um, ArcGIS and I had experience working on those for uh, soils and forestry GIS class in college. And he said, do you know how to use these ESRI applications for spatial databases? And I said, yeah, a little bit. And so oh, he said, do you want to come and work? Yeah, work for my company. And then they said, does anyone have an idea on something we can sell? And I said, well, actually, I have this idea about this project I was going to do. You could use a lot of these, again, a lot of the impacts and assets of these companies are spread out over oceans and countries. Yeah. And Shell had a distribution center in Iceland. And I said, we could apply ISO 14001 and create a web map where you could watch your pollutants travel or watch your risks. It would be basically helping them manage their environmental risk. Mm using this web application. And they were like, we love it, go build it. And so I built it with a little tiny, tiny team. I think they paid me $45,000 and they sold it. I want to say for a million and a half to another company. And I was like, oh, this entrepreneurship thing is like, I I don't like the math on <laughs> for me, for me. I like yeah. it for the company that I worked for, but yeah. I didn't like it for me. So, Was there a place in time where entrepreneurship or 
in the case of the product you just described, entrepreneurship really emerged as a clear distinction of kind of your, your leaning? I think that was really it. You know, I always knew I was creative. Ideas are a dime a dozen, but finding somebody who can also imagine, you know, putting the puzzle pieces together and understanding like with a limited set of resources, you know, how does somebody MacGyver together a solution? And that was all, I was always a very creative kid around using whatever resources I had at hand. And I guess, you know, it really has been, this is the first company where I have sort of said, you know, I'm a leader and I can own up to that. I think maybe just being born kind of female, it always felt like arrogant. I had also been called arrogant a lot growing up. And so I think having the audacity to claim that space of leadership, Mm. but I I have just started to recognize, I mean, I think those were the early signs. I was always an entrepreneur, almost never was there a company where it was just like, Hey, here's the thing that's been created before. It was always like, Hey, here's a weird little problem. Nobody's got time to think about it. Go into a closet and tell us if you come up with something good. And then you get better at solving these problems. So you get harder and harder and harder problems. You know, usually it was something that someone kind of was interested in figuring out. So it had that kind of R and D quality to it, but they were just like, I don't have time to figure this out. And then I would come back and they'd be surprised and it would end up generating money and value So I think it was always very apparent. I just never wanted to call it that. Or when I did, I was often accused of being arrogant. But I started to recognize like, oh, actually not everybody has this capability, like that tenacity. I just remember as a kid, like I loved, I would get like a yarn pile. My mom was a knitter or I'd get a pile of jewelry that was like snaggled and tangled and terrible. And I just would relish because I knew what it was going to look like when it was untangled and it was going to be so satisfying when it was a pretty ball or jewelry hung in this very like organized way. So like the process of untangling was so exciting. You know, it was like that, was that story they tell about the kids, the kid, the optimist and the pessimist. There's gotta be a horse and there's gotta be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> I was that kid. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know so, that story? I, I don't, I want to hear that story, but what's the title? Um, I can't, the op, it's like a parable about an optimist and a pessimist, these parents who buy this kid a room full of presents. And he's just like, Oh, what I wanted wasn't in here. And the other kid, they just give him a pile of horse manure. And, you know, the first kid, they're just like, gosh, you're so, we got you everything that you wanted and it's still not good enough. And the second kid's just in his room digging. And he's like, with all this horse manure, there's gotta be a pony in there somewhere, <laughs> you know, <That's> awesome. like, <laughs> So yeah, I was the pony in there somewhere kind of kid. And I think that's, mm. you know, love those hard problems. So yeah, I think always, there was always like entrepreneurship and then choir. I tend to be a collectivist. I have a very strong vision. And I think if you saw me in a very short spurt, you would think, oh my gosh, you know, it's gotta be Tanya's way or the highway. But I think people who have worked with me for long periods of time from concept to fruition recognize that it's not that way at all. Like I have, I have a very strong opinion in the beginning when we get started, but I like to create the structure in which groups of people create and make something beautiful together. And choral music is very much that way. You have structured parts. You, You don't see a lot of times the genius of the structure in the music the way that the chords are organized, the way that the parts are organized, the way that the, the parts sort of ebb and flow with one another. And, but the impact that something like that creates when people sing in unity and they follow that structure, you know, if you sung Corley, like the experience of being in there, I've never felt a feeling so good in my life as being on stage, singing in harmony and in unity with a group of people. Like it is a high 
I imagine that's what drug addicts get addicted to. It's so good, you know, and I'm always trying to recreate that type of structure with a lot of beauty and creativity within it and group participation in my work life and in my teams. I know I don't feel I'm not alone in this because I minored in music. I sang in a show choir. I know what it's like when you, everyone hits that note oh, and nothing, looks around. Nothing feels, but you're crying. And the eyes you're are watering. Crying. It's, that good. it's that good. It's that good. It's like that it's moment that where everyone just looks at each other and says, mm-hmm. there's no words. There's, you should know no. you hit it. You should know that no. you've, you've nailed it. And it's something that's, it's rare, but just such a true so moment rare. in business that I love it. I've had this year with like our, the evolution of our business, just that moment where you just yeah. kind of look around at each other and you go, mm-hmm. yeah. yep, that's it. We nailed it. We nailed it. Yeah. And it's, it is fleeting, but I'm always chasing that. I'm always trying to set up. It's a runner's high. It's totally, like you said, it's a complete closure of expectation. It, it's beautiful. It's, it's group flow. It's a group flow state. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, they say neurologically that choral singing actually can generate a feeling similar to how orgasm feels in the brain. Like it's generating a similar pattern of activity. That's certainly how it feels to me when it's happening. Like, whoa, this is, you understand what, this is singing that was meant to venerate God. I shouldn't be comparing it, I guess, to an orgasm, but that was made by that. I think it's a completely (laughs) um, okay comparison. Yeah. And and those of us who've had the, the experience, the, the, I mean, I, I do think, I'm in the camp that I think everyone can sing. They just haven't been taught how to t- sing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm trying to teach my children now, like, what does harmony sound like? How do you mm. hear it? Not how do you recognize it, which is first step, but how do you hear it? How do you actually begin to like in- hear the intonation and match it in- internally in your head? Mm. How do you then reproduce it? And I think that's, I never, maybe until this conversation, really thought about how I can extrapolate the things I know about music, which was my first career, into business and into the work. Do you sing with your kids? All the time. Oh my God. Oh yeah. We're such a singing family. My kids most often stand in front of uh, of our Alexa spot in our kitchen. They'll be found mm-hmm. in one of two places, in front of the Alexa, memorizing uh, Connor Price is the latest, right? Like this dude is just blowing up. It's crazy. So like, I know spinning, I know splat, I know any song. I Connor don't know Price any sings. of these. Don't know any of these songs. Right? I'm looking it up. And then they're yeah. teaching. Oh God, you're going to. So Connor Price is my, my favorite obsession right now. My buddy, uh, Conrad and I are always sending each other, um, new artists. Uh, there's another Harry Mack. If you, so these happen to be two are like white hip hop guys, but, or like yeah. rappers. But if you like, uh, off the cuff, like rap battle style rap where people just freestyle, go listen to Harry Mack. Like you want something that will totally crack your reality. And you're like, how in the world is this guy doing this over and over and over and over and over? It's like a level yeah. of genius that most people I don't just, a- achieve. I know. Yeah. I, I do value, I, I love to sing, but I'm not a musician. And I just, I really appreciate the genius of musicians. It's and, incredible. So my children, yeah. my children in a band, uh, they have band practice right, <laughs> right about now. Um, Awesome. And so I have electric guitar and, and piano and singing pretty much uh, around the clock in my house, which is a joy uh, when it's not also just chaos and interrupting interviews. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just like, my daughter and I will occasionally sing a little song together and I'm always just like, oh my God, our voices blend so well. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. We're related. That's fine. That's awesome. <laughs> I that's so wonderful. You know, I'm like, oh, that sounds so good when I sing with her. You realize why people start family bands because they all have that similar sort of like timbre of the voice, oh, you know? I can't wait. I can't wait. My children are um, 12, nine and six. I just can't wait yeah. till the moment where that like gel, where they gel and their voices get to the place where they mature and they can find their place. Like they can find right. their, their notch right. in the song, you know, right. and, um, and not follow me, uh, or let me hit harmony and then be able to carry right. melody. Oh, right. That's what teamwork is all about. It is. Yeah, it is. You got to train them, train them up. Right. Tanya, I am going to change gears here just a little bit. Get us, uh, on track to the epiphany moment or moments in your career where you began to really drill down to what has become the driving momentum, the force for you of bringing your current venture to life. Tell me a bit about Solar for Schools and the spark that that was in your career for sort of the realization about how not only facilities work, but budgets are managed and electricity is handled. Yeah. Back in early 2002, I was working for Bonneville Environmental Foundation. They said, hey, you know, we're selling these green tags. We're kind of interested in using the business energy tax credit and some of these new tax instruments that were coming out to get more solar energy deployed. You know, back then it was very fringe. So they said, we've got this idea about buying green tags off schools and having businesses help facilitate that through the tax credits. And can you figure it out? I'm like, oh yeah. You know, like that was the kind of thing I love. Poorly defined problem. blank sheet. Like nowadays, I'm just like, it gives me hives just to think about it. But back then, all I had was energy and time, you know, I had no responsibilities. So, (laughs) and I just really grew to love, well, of course I love tech. I was, I'd already been sold on tech. I was a big tech nerd, but solar was pretty much just dudes in ponytails, um, doing off the grid systems. So, you know, we were looking at sort of professionalizing this. We had so much, there was a lot, I just realized like, you know, Implementing a new technology is a much about as much about like solving customer problems and making it huggable. How do we make solar huggable, not just a tech? And I feel like check, you know, we really worked with, we didn't just put it on the schools where it was quite visible. We really worked with the public to try and make it more visible, understandable, approachable. We worked with the trades, IBEW and NECA. We worked with, so trades and installers, we worked with building inspectors who were like, huh? We worked with linemen's unions for the utilities and just the work never really stopped. And it was, it was very much like throwing a party and making sure everybody has a really good experience. And I do think that solar for our schools, you know, as is evidenced by the fact that they have over a megawatt of demonstration scale solar on like 200 sites nationwide, it, it did the thing, you know, it made a whole generation of people think of solar, not just as some fringe hippie thing that you do. Mm -hmm. If you're living on a boat, it's something that people want. It was something that people wanted and they loved. And, you know, we created masks. It was fun. We made it fun. So I learned two things there. I learned that technology commercialization typically has very little to do with the actual technology and more to do with how it appeals to solving a problem for consumers. So I I became very adamantly against working on solutions in search of a problem and really all about looking for problems. And, And there's so many good technology ideas out there, 
looking for problems and finding a technology that can help solve that problem. So in that vein, between the time I was doing solar and when I started CEL, there was a lot of water that went under that bridge. I had started a company in a totally different segment, healthcare, never again. And then when I came back to energy, I was working on microgrids and power plants. And again, working with communities on these types of technologies, like how can we help community, the things, the problem we were solving for communities was they wanted greater autonomy. Uh, They wanted more economic income to stay in their community. So they wanted to own these energy assets. They wanted jobs. So solar installers or other tech battery installers And in some communities, they wanted decarbonization and resilience. So, you know, we were saying what technologies can help them with that. We were working on lots of projects. We won the Smart Electric Power Alliance's Visionary of the Year Award for our work on bringing a microgrid to a small rural former coal town. But, you know, I wasn't super interested in being a project developer. I don't like that type of risk. I know there are some people that really do. That's not the kind of entrepreneur I am. I like execution risk because I'm good at executing. So I spun out a PECI, Portland Energy Conservation Inc., where we were doing, where we won the SEPA award. We were doing all the microgrids and community stuff. And I started talking to the people that I knew, which at that time was mayors, council people, uh, utility program managers. I started talking to schools, cities, counties, because these were all the folks we had been working with at PECI. And I was like, hey, just tell me about decarbonization and what some of the challenges have been for your community. And the thing that just kept coming up over and over and over again was buildings. Like buildings generate 40% of the carbon emissions worldwide. These communities that were really intent on decarbonizing were just like, oh my God, buildings are such a mess. And so the whole theory became that, hey, we'll just force utilities to clean up power supply on one side. And on the other side, we'll just electrify everything. We'll pass all these codes that basically promote electrification. And I was like, cool, that sounds cool. But the deeper I got into that, what I found was that you started to have capacity problems that would hurt the economics of that decarbonization and put the burden on the building owner unless you had a controls layer. And that controls layer was pretty easy to come by if you're like a residential house and you only have one or two thermal zones. You just put a nest nest on your house and it can talk to the grid. Or if you're Google, you can have the smartest engineers in the world build you some beautiful bespoke solution and they'll make your building talk to the grid. But for 90% of commercial building owners, they had no controls capable of managing the underlying complexity of their buildings in a way that didn't end up disadvantaging them. And the controls that were out there were just like funky. So, you know, we still go out there and we'll see a building control system running on a 2007 gateway computer that has a Windows 98 operating system. Yep, yep, <laughs> and, yeah. and it's on some beige PC in a windowless mechanical closet on its own network, segregated mm-hmm. network. And someone literally has to drive all the way across town just to like turn down a thermostat. So it's like 30-year-old technology. It's very expensive. It's very bespoke. It's very difficult for them to operate. And this just kept coming up over and over and over again. And the customers that were most impacted were schools. Energy is their second highest cost. They spend yeah. more on energy than they do on computers and textbooks combined. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, this is so cool. Like I know controls, I know software and I know schools. And so I got really curious about whether or not there was a technology out there that could affordably solve this problem at a price they were willing to pay. And that was when I happened upon something called model predictive control. And that became the technology on which we based our innovations that are now our software platform. You did a phenomenal interview that I have to uh, nod to and, and tip my hat to our mutual friend, Likri Vat, the mm-hmm. Climate Champions podcast, where we are both now alumni, where you said something that piqued my interest. And I want to maybe try to recreate the moment or expand it a bit. You were talking about this notion, the coalition of the willing <laughs> around the idea of something that we as an industry think often that we have to do, which is changing people's minds. And I think if I recall correctly, you said, I'm not worried about changing people's minds, dot, 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 long sort of of pseudo long explanation, looking for the coalition of the willing. Can you expand on this for me? Yeah. You know what? The 10 years that I spent in health and wellness taught me something. Trying to change people's minds is a big fat waste of time. Never waste your time trying to change somebody's mind. Do the thing yourself and have a passion for it. And I think the quote that I said to Lee was, there's a blog that's called Shit My Dad Says. <laughs> one of the things that this guy said was, he's like, you don't go to a park and put your blanket down next to the one doctor in the whole place. Like this focus on trying to, you know, convince, you don't need to fight with them. You don't need to engage with them. You just need to keep moving forward. There are people, if you have a message that resonates, those people will magnify your message. You know, they will attract other people. And so when I talk about a coalition of the willing, when you're starting a new technology, it's so hard. And I'm not just talking about early adopters. I think often we're not looking for the willing in the right places, you know, because again, we often come with the technology first, like a solution in search of a problem. But if you're really listening to people's problems, you'll find I have a technology or climate maybe isn't the thing that floats somebody's boats, but we were in these rural communities where they didn't care about microgrids to decarbonize, but do you know what they did care about? Jobs. You know, so when I say coalition of the willing, I mean, there's always some problem that someone has. And if you search for their problem and, and, and you authentically legitimately do have a solution to it or what you're advocating could address their problem, it's just so much easier to bring them along. It's not asking them to change Um, It's asking them to believe in you and your solution and to demonstrate that you've really listened to them and care. So it's funny to use George Bush's coalition of the willing, though. um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I like I like to think about that because we spend a lot of time chatting with folks who want to be on the show and they've built a product for X or Y reason. Sometimes I scratch my head and wonder, is this a, you know, to, to, um, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of problem or solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I speak with you, I hear someone who, as another entrepreneur, I see someone with pattern matching that you've developed and honed over many years of seeing uh, problem, opportunity, solution, matching the two struggling and deciding where struggle is warranted and where it's not. And yeah, I just, I wanted to explore that with you because I feel like there's a lot of folks out there who will benefit from hearing and actually just receiving uh, that, that extra sort of pat on the back, the freedom to 
not try to change people's minds. We are still at the inflection point in our industry where we have, we are just crossing the chasm and we're still getting to the early majority, uh, you know, solar as a category and energy management, well, solar as a category, um, is reaching, you know, uh, that is now looking for that 10 to 30% market adoption, you know, the next, the next, um, phase and, and all the other components, it's, it's still to be determined. Like, is it going to be, uh, is it going to be a bolt on to the home electrification boom or the EV boom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or is one going to precede the other? Are they going to kind of ha- mm-hmm. happen hand in hand? Mm-hmm. And there's so much opportunity out there to fix problems so the way that the way that you're fixing problems and specialize. You know, there are people who have a very have a lot of breadth and that's great. And they can help our policymakers and, you know, sort of bring people along there. But, you know, I really love the solar industry looks so different <laughs> than mm, when I was in it. it. I felt like Rip Van Winkle when I came yeah. back, you know, in 10 years, it just became unrecognizable, both the scale and the specialization. Yeah. So there, you know, there are so many different directions that you can go. And that was one cool thing about working with students is to say, hey, bring your flavor to solar, bring your flavor to whatever energy technology. We're like, do you love technology and coding? Great. Do you love marketing and branding and telling stories? Great. Do you love making things aesthetically beautiful or fitting them in weird spaces? Awesome. Do you enjoy driving a truck and being outside? Cool. You know, so I think the Coalition of the Willing is also about authentically finding things that make you excited to connect with other people in your industry, like finding the inner, instead of imposing our enthusiasms and our beliefs on others, really sort of being like, what is this kid like? Or what is this person like? Cool. Have you ever thought about applying that skill? And we are seeing that. I feel like in climate tech right now, there's a really big moment where there are all these layoffs in tech and there are people who could be making ridiculous amounts of money working in the financial sector or applying their skills elsewhere, but they're really trying to be creative about how to apply that for some good. Yes. And um, when it comes to climate change. And I just want to say, I have always been a diehard. I have a picture of myself when I was a kid with a no nuke shirt on, you know, my parents were hippies, they were the off the grid solar types. And I know there are a lot of people out there that are like pro nukes right now. So please don't let that get your dander up. But even though I was always, I'm a pinko commie liberal environmentalist (laughs) through and through, I have always had a lot of friends along the political spectrum or colleagues or coworkers. And while my personal style isn't everybody's style, There's always some way that the things that I'm doing that I love because it's the right thing to do environmentally or morally or ethically, they also see it from a different moral, ethical viewpoint. But they can see the same thing like um, in the religious communities where I worked, where we were first doing solar, they really felt that, you know, um, it was their job to be good stewards of God's creation. And so that was something that I really respected. They didn't have the same feeling that I had or the same angle on their (laughs) stewardship, but I could really connect to them around that. They felt very strongly that, you know, they had the responsibility to be stewards of creation. And this gave them an opportunity to harness that drive. And so even though I wasn't a particularly religious person, I felt like that was a way that we could connect. And, you know, same with rural communities, the dignity of having a beautiful home and Mm -hmm. power to lighten your load and perform functions in your home, like refrigeration, like backup. I could relate to them around the dignity of being able to 
not be helpless during a disaster, the dignity of not having to give your money to a utility that you might not agree with or that a shareholder owned. So I think there are always things that we can find, even with people who we might think are political opponents to connect. Well, Tanya, there are so many questions that are going to get left on the cutting floor here that I really want to dig in with you. So I'd love to have you back to, to dig into some more probing and prodding around product and product market fit. Some of the things that you've learned as an entrepreneur, but given that it is uh, Women's History Month, and that I admire all of the ways that you have just stood out as a uh, as a female leader in this industry. I got to ask if you would share with us sort of your thoughts on or philosophy around talent, in particular, advice for young female talent or any age female talent trying to break into and and, and hold place in the energy sector where it's traditionally mm-hmm. been quite male dominated and people who want to make their career in solar. So I have that as my maybe penultimate question for you as we begin to wrap up here. Well, I consider myself now that I have a word for it, non-binary, I've always been ambivalent about my gender. That said, I'm very aware that how I'm perceived and that it does matter. It doesn't matter that much to me, but it matters. It matters. I think the one cool thing about being socialized as female, being brought up as female is the skills that you bring in in terms of empathy and in remote workforces, the ability to have a theory of mind beyond your yourself, like I'm solving for a problem, but that problem is really only a problem that I have. (laughs) So Mm. being able to be aware of your own mind stream and sort of like constantly forced to examine your behavior and do that emotional labor actually is really important skill in the modern workplace. And I know women are often forced to do that emotional labor, but I think uh, taking a step back and thinking about how do I screen for and evaluate that as a quality that all employees, regardless of gender, need to have to take care of one another, to take care of the company. And that regardless of whether you show up as a woman, a man, or something in between, you have that skill and attribute, but I do think that women have an advantage there in terms of how they've been socialized. So I think just keep leveraging that skill. It becomes more and more important and make it obvious. Don't do that emotional labor without asking for credit. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that people should make emotional labor more visible in the workplace and show the value that it has in not burning people out. You know, we've seen that those statistics for organizations and countries that are led by women. Anything particular that you do to screen for it? Getting better at it, but I think defining behaviors. So we have something that we called facts-based culture, focus, accountability, courage, transparency, and sharing. And then as a team, we're constantly, in fact, I just got our Slack notification for our monthly meeting. We're constantly defining specific behaviors and observable traits that are facts-based. So we say this is a behavior or observable trait that demonstrates focus or degrades focus. And people will talk about specific things that they've seen that have happened to them or that they have done. And then we're building up this kind of excellence about really being able to recognize when someone is demonstrating one of those values. So I think just making, like I said, taking that emotional labor, that culture piece that's so important and making it really obvious. So that's that would be my recommendation about how to screen for it and ask about that. Tanya, I believe that readers are leaders and that the, we can learn from the wisdom passed along to us from books and, and other mediums. Is there any particular book or other resource that you find that you routinely are sharing with others that has had a big impact on your life and therefore have, has had that ripple or knock on effect for others? My favorite books, nonfiction book is Edison in the Electric Chair. 
I think it's a really oh, yeah. fascinating, a fascinating social study, technology study, a lot of really interesting things coming together at that time in the world. And it's an industry that I love. The Grid, probably a lot of people on your show have recommended The Grid. Yeah, not really, um, not a ton, but it's on my list. Gretchen Bakke. Gretchen Bakke, really well-written book. And I think also a really interesting social commentary. Um, Atomic Habits has been a big one for me. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that type of sort of habit that builds on other habits. And then um, I always loved The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, another nonfiction book by Ann Mm -hmm. Fadiman about a Hmong family with an epileptic daughter that is interacting with the Western medical system. And I think it's a great example. She's very non-judgmental. She really just presents the story very factually. And I think it, to that point that we were talking about before, where people get really calcified in an identity Mm. and we think that our way is the way or the right way. To me, that book was an excellent way to raise some questions around what is the right way and what role does culture have in separating us or helping us find a path forward. So love that book and would recommend it to anyone. That's amazing. Thank you for that, by the way. Fantastic (laughs) recommendations. Uh, Where folks are so inclined, can they learn more about you, connect with you, uh, you know, uh, join you in your, in your search for contribution? Well, I am communityenergylabs.com. That's plural is a great way to get in touch with what we're doing. Our news page is always updated. And then I'm on LinkedIn. So those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. And I just appreciate you so much for having me and um, taking the time to chat. It is always a good time. And we do need to get our rounds club started here soon. I think at the next conference we said. Absolutely. Our, our mm-hmm. karaoke, uh, karaoke uh-huh. club. That would be mm-hmm. a fantastic. Let's wrap today with our final, what we call bold prediction. What do you believe is the problem that needs to be solved that serves as a linchpin to get us to a decarbonized grid? And maybe I would add an equitably decarbonized grid by by 2050, the goal that many have in mind. Mm, Not going to say what you think, I bet. I predict that we need more empathy. (laughs) We need to focus. We need to focus. We need to slow down. And we need to bring more people along with us. Mm. And I believe if we can do that, sort of like with LED light bulbs, you know, (laughs) when it happened, bloop, it happened, you know, so we just made it really easy for people to love. And so my prediction is that we're going to have to professionalize our industry and bring more people in with wider perspectives so that we can get that mass market adoption because our solutions are, they're existential. That is a wonderful answer. I'm so grateful to have had a chance to spend time with you. Tanya Barham is the CEO and founder, co-founder of Community Energy Labs. You can find them, as she said, at communityenergylabs.com. And we'll have plenty of the resources that she's just mentioned in the show notes on our homepage, which if you stick around for just a moment, you will hear more about. Tanya, thank you so much. I look forward to having you back on the show. We can dig into all the things that still laid on (laughs) my question interview flow list. Cannot wait. Cannot wait, Nico. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sticking around all the way through to the end. As I just promised, the resources for this and frankly, every other conversation that we've had on Suncast can be found at mysuncast.com. If you click on the episode notes tab, we've got a blog about this episode with social media links, those wonderful book recommendations that you've just heard and a slew of other things that I dug up in my research for this interview 
things that maybe we did or maybe we didn't discuss on this particular version of the recording, but that I find interesting nevertheless as you dig in to this topic. I want to say thank you once again to Tanya for joining us. Truly was a pleasure to sit with you. Thank you for sharing from your resources and wealth of knowledge. I have learned so much about entrepreneurship just in our conversations, and I am certain to have you back. If you are new here and you're finding value in this podcast, I have one other special request. Would you please consider, if you in fact feel that this is added value, giving us a five-star rating and enthusiastic review in Apple? Of course, that's easy to do. In Spotify, sort of easy as well. For everyone else, if you go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, it takes about three minutes and I'm super grateful for how it gives visibility to this show so that others can learn and grow with us the same as you are doing right now. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. And I want to thank our sponsors who help make this show free to you. You can learn more about who they are and what they offer at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you could learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions like they do twice a week. I look forward to seeing you once again here or maybe in our community. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.